Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here among you again, and I want to extend the greeting of my home church, the Southampton Primitive Baptist Church. I am thankful that even though across a great distance, we can be fellow laborers in the gospel and in the kingdom of God, and that we can be a mutual encouragement one to another, that we serve the same Savior, the same Lord, and we're united together in that, and we are bound together even across that distance by that tie of love and the the electing grace of God to call us out of this world and unite us together. I've been greatly blessed to be here, and you you put on this men's conference year after year, and I would admit I know that I don't know the half of the effort, expense, sacrifice, cost, time, labor that goes into putting something like that on. And I am so grateful, and I know so many are, so thankful to you as a church for your labor of love in in doing that, in hosting us here. And Lewis mentioned this as well, but I was thinking a lot about this fact that something like this, you, you are sowing, you are planting seeds of which you won't necessarily see all the fruit that's born from them because we come in kind of like whip in like a hurricane and then we're out of here a day later and we bring back with us all of the seeds that have been sown in our hearts and the encouragement and we bring it back to our churches here and there and you might not see the fruit that's born from that, but you're planting in faith, believing that your labor of love will bear fruit to the kingdom of God. And I know that it does. And I, I do thank you so much for that, for, for all that you give to hold this, this event. And I thank you for having me here this morning. And the passage that I'm going to preach from this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 4. book of 1 Samuel, the fourth chapter, and I'll just go ahead and begin by reading this entire chapter. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they may bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, 
All Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord came into the camp. And the Philistines were afraid. And they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, and there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. And when he came, lo, Eli sat upon a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth the noise of this tumult? And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety and eight years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. And the man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. And he said, What is there done, my son? And the messenger answered and said, Israel is fled before the Philistines. And there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that he fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck break, and he died, for he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. And his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, was with child near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast born a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. Now, if I give this message a title, it would be this, When God Doesn't Help. This is quite a dark, sad, tragic story to begin a sermon with. And it is a cautionary tale, but I will also tell you that I do hope that there will be a message of hope that will come out of this before the end. But we have to bear with it a ways because this is a tragic story. It's part of the history of the people of Israel, and it's a cautionary lesson to us today as we're reading it. The things that were written before time were written for our learning that we could be warned by the things that were written, that we could have comfort from the things that were written. And I believe we see from this passage uh, many important lessons for us today. 
In Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, it says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Many times in our life, perhaps constantly and always in our life, we are faced with the choice of whether we will seek the Lord's will, the Lord's direction, follow the Lord's guidance in obedience to him, or we will go our own way. We will seek our own path, our own will, and follow our own paths, making ourselves the God of our own life. And one of those ways leads to life, and the other leads to destruction and to devastation. And that is, in essence, what we see unfolding here for the people of Israel. Let me give you a little bit of the context of this, in case you're not intimately familiar with the story of things leading up to this. This event happened at a very critical, important time in the history of God's people, our history, because we are the descendants of God's people. We are the inheritors and heirs of the blessings and privileges of being the people of God. And so this is in our history. And this was at a time in history where there was a great turning point in the worship of God. And one of those important events is right here, where the Ark of the Covenant is taken out of the land of Israel, it leaves Shiloh where it had been placed for hundreds of years where the worship of God was centered uh, and the Old Testament tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant inside it was there for worship and things would never again be restored to that state. Later on, there would be a temple built, a temple of cedar and the Ark uh, would be placed inside and there would be built a new holy place in there uh, and a new place of worshiping God would be set up, but the way things were would never be the same again after this. It's also a turning point in the leadership of the kingdom of Israel because this is at the end of a period that we refer to as the period of the judges. When God would stir up somebody or sometimes uh, a few people throughout the land of Israel, he would stir them up by the spirit of God. He would equip them to lead to judge the people, to hear their cases and administer justice among them, to fight for them, to lead them into battle against their enemies. And that period was coming to a close, and this is right toward the beginning of the time when God was going to raise up a king to reign over Israel. So it's about to be the beginning of the monarchy. And it also, as the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel begins, it describes a time in which the leadership of Israel, represented by the high priest, Eli, and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, the leadership of the nation Israel was in a state of corruption and wickedness. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were doing all kinds of wickedness in how they administered the sacrifices and what they were doing. And it describes that in the early chapters. Uh, They were not following the law of God. They were corrupting the way the sacrifices were offered. They were committing all kinds of sin in a variety of ways. And the result was that the worship of God had been polluted by their wickedness and people in Israel abhorred 
the sacrifices and the worship of God coming to that place because of the wickedness that they were doing. People didn't want to go and offer a sacrifice because of what they were participating in and observing because of the corruption of the priests. So the leaders, the people in positions of power that were supposed to be God's instruments for justice in the land were performing wickedness and greediness and enriching themselves and fattening themselves up on the wealth of the people and on the sacrifices of God. And it was in a very bad condition. The nation was in a corrupt state, but even then there was a faithful remnant of godly people. And that faithful remnant begins this book represented to us by one of those godly uh, people of God, named a woman named Hannah, a broken-hearted woman, because she's barren, she cannot give birth to a child, and she's being uh, persecuted, she's being afflicted in this state, and in that state she cries out to God, she prays to God that God would give her a child, and God answers her prayer, and her son that is born is a prophet named Samuel, and he's taken into the uh, by the priest and raised up to serve God in God's house. And the first chapters of Samuel talk about how he came from this situation and rose up to be a prophet whose word went out to all Israel. And then we come to the beginning of chapter 4, and it has this brief mention about how the word of Samuel came to all Israel. But then uh, if you read on for the next two or three chapters, I think, Samuel is not mentioned again because we see the people of Israel going their own way rather than seeking God's way. And it leads them to destruction. They take upon themselves to undertake going up and fighting against the Philistines. They don't seek for the Lord's will. They don't inquire of the Lord and ask what he would have them to do, but they go out to battle against the Philistines and they are defeated. They are defeated uh, right away in verse 2. And they it says they in verse 1, Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. The name Ebenezer, this name means stone of help. You might sing this hymn. It says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come. When Israel was given a great victory, they raised up a stone and they called it Ebenezer, stone of help, as a monument and a remembrance of how God helped them to overcome their enemies. And there's perhaps a touch of irony here at the beginning of this chapter that where this battle took place was the place of Ebenezer, but here God does not come to their aid. They try instead to take it upon themselves to uh, in, a, in a way, manipulate the help of God, and it leads to a very destructive result in this. They pitched near beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched at Aphek, and the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines, and they slew of the army of the field about 4,000 men. This is the kind of introduction to this chapter. And then what unfolds to what, what's about to unfold has a kind of narrative twist to it because it begins on what might seem like a hopeful note. 
Israel's defeated. They're defeated in battle. They lose 4,000 men. They go back and they say, why, why did this happen to us? Why do we get defeated? And they conceive in their minds what they must have thought was a brilliant idea. They're going to fetch the Ark of the Covenant and they're going to march that ark with the, with the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, carrying it out. They're going to march that out into the battlefield. And they're going to use the Lord of Israel in order to get victory over their enemies. And they think that this is going to be the thing that is going to give them victory. And they're fired up. They're shouting with a great shout in the camp. They're crying out. And we see the Philistines. The Philistines hear them shouting. And the Philistines are scared. Everyone thinks that this is, this is turning in the favor of the Israelites. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark was a box. It was made of wood. It was a little over four feet long and it was rectangular and it was something about two, two and a half feet, uh, in the width and the depth of it and about four, little over four feet long. It was made of wood and it was overlaid with gold all about on the sides and inside and out and on the lid on top of it. And the Ark of the Covenant uh, was placed inside the most holy place in the tabernacle that God had them set up in Moses' day. And it had four rings on each corner of that Ark that staves were put through and those were carried by the priests. So the priests would carry the Ark where they went. At first it was when they traveled through the wilderness. And God led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they would, whenever God led them to go somewhere else, they would pick up the ark, buy those staves, and they would carry it with them. They were not supposed to touch it. They were not supposed to meddle with it. They treated it as the holy uh, object that it was because it was set apart to be a central part of the worship of God. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, there were the tables of stone on which were written the law of God. And in the middle of the nation of Israel, in the tabernacle, in the holy place of the tabernacle, inside the most holy place of the tabernacle, inside the Ark of the Covenant, there was written on tables of stone the law of God. So this was precious. This was holy. On top of the ark, there was what was called the mercy seat. And it was on top of the ark. And on each side of it, there was a cherubim that was carved. A cherubim was a heavenly creature. And, and all of these things worked together to show that what they had inside the holy of holies on earth was a representation of God's heavenly throne room. That the things that were on earth were a picture of the true things in heaven. And the book of Hebrews talks about this, how God gave the earthly temple and the earthly tabernacle and the ark and the cherubim and the mercy seat and the tables of stone. All these things were pictures of the true things in the heavens. And they had before them an image of the heavenly reality. There was no image of God in their temple. There was no, there was nothing that contained God in their temple. But there was on top of the ark, the mercy seat, and God said that he would meet with the people there on the mercy seat, which he did. 
And on several occasions, we have that recorded for us in the Old Testament where Moses or the people of God were there, uh, the, the high priest was there, and God came in a thick cloud, he disguising himself, disguising his glory, he came in a thick cloud, and he met with the people there on top of the mercy seat. So there was no image of God, but there was an image of God's throne where he came and he met with the people. So this was a precious. This was holy. And the people perhaps viewed it as a kind of object of power, and they thought they could wield it to their advantage, but that is not how things work with the living God, with the God of Israel. That is not how things work. We do not wield God's power, but God acts in accordance with his purpose and his will, and we are called to obedience and submission to him. And we will walk by his power and his strength when we walk in accordance with his will and his purpose. But they thought they could carry out into the field this holy object. Perhaps they had been reading about how in the days of Joshua, God told them to march with the ark around the city of Jericho every day for seven days, and on the seventh day, march around seven times, and they marched around, and they had the ark of God, and God cast down the walls of that city, and they were victorious, and perhaps they misunderstood to think that they could take it upon themselves to manipulate the God of Israel to do their bidding, but it was not so. The people sent for the ark, they carry the ark out into the field of battle, and they're shouting with a great shout, and, and we are given this glimpse into both sides of this battle. The battle lines are drawn, and you can picture the camps ready to go out into battle, and the people of Israel are all fired up because the ark has been brought into the camp, and they think things are going to turn around, and they're shouting with a great shout. And the Philistines hear this, and they're remembering their recent history that they've heard, tales that have been passed down, that have come to them, where they heard about how the God of Israel uh, sent mighty plagues upon the nation of Israel, overthrew the uh, uh, upon the nation of Egypt, overthrew Egypt and Egypt's gods and defeated them and delivered his people out of them. And they are scared. They think these, and, and, and we see even their viewpoint, they didn't understand that there is only one God, one true and living God, but interpreted through their lens, they, they say these are the gods that delivered the people out of uh, Egypt, that sent many plagues upon the nation of Egypt, that slew the firstborn in Egypt, that parted the Red Sea. And now they're scared. And they're scared, and they, and they begin to fire themselves up. And, and they don't cast their care upon their gods. They don't uh, seek for the help of their gods in this situation. They just try to stir each other up to fight like men. And, and they realize that if they don't, they're, they're dead. They better fight with all they got by the power of their own strength against these mighty gods that they're coming up against. And that is how the battle is introduced. The two sides go out to battle. They meet in battle. And Israel, rather than having things turn around in their favor, they are overthrown with an even greater defeat, a larger loss of life, 
and a tragic end where they are defeated in battle. The priests, Hophni and Phinehas, are killed in the battle. And the ark of God is taken. And that is how the battle ends. And then we have this messenger coming back to deliver the news to Eli. Eli hears it. He, when he hears the news, he uh, falls down. He dies. And then it tells us this story about his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, the priest, how she gives birth to a child. And she's in her labor pains. And she's dying in childbirth. And her women attempt to comfort her and say, be of good cheer. A, a child, a son is born. You've given birth to a son, but she can see no hope. She can see no bright uh, light at the end of the tunnel in all of this. All she sees is the tragedy and the darkness and the gloom of everything that has taken place. Most of all, that the ark of God itself has been taken. That precious and holy center of the people and the worship of God. There, uh, they must have understood and seen it as, as an important connecting point with the God of Israel and a center of their nation. And it had now been taken by their enemies, carried off like a prisoner of war into captivity. And she names her son Ichabod, which means something like there is no glory or where is the glory? And she says, she says, the glory is departed from Israel because the ark of God was taken and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory is departed from Israel for the ark of God is taken. The glory is departed. Another way this could be said is, is to say that the glory has been exiled. The glory itself has gone into captivity. Now, the ark of God, as we've already implied, the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, which had the tables of stone, which had the mercy seat, the ark of the covenant did not contain God. God could not be carried off into captivity uh, against his will uh, by the will of man, uh, just by carrying the Ark of the Covenant away. But at least symbolically, God, the, the God of Israel, or at least in the minds of the Philistines and in Israel, God himself was being carried off into captivity. And in fact, I would say that God willingly, God willingly would go into captivity with the Ark which is evidenced by what we would see, uh, what we would see to follow this story. As I said at the beginning, this is a cautionary tale and a warning for us, a powerful warning about what results when we go about things our own way rather than God's way. God had, for the people of Israel, God had raised up, in their case, a prophet to lead them and to guide them. God, God had begun to uh, restore and begin to revive visions among the prophets and he gave Samuel visions and he appeared to Samuel. And it, it was said that that had been precious in those days. That was rare. God had not appeared by visions for many generations or at least not very frequently among them. 
So God was beginning to do something great among them, and among the things that he was doing is he was raising up a prophet, a judge, and a leader in Samuel who had wisdom, who had a fear of God, and who was guided by the word of God because the word of God spoke to him and was guiding him. And so they had the ability and the opportunity to inquire of the prophet of God, but they didn't do that. They didn't seek his guidance. They had the ability to seek the Lord in prayer for their deliverance, like Hannah had done when she was in her heartbreak and her condition. She poured out her heart unto God. She poured out her heart unto God, and God heard her prayer, and God answered her prayer in accordance with his wisdom and his purpose for her life. But they didn't seek God in prayer. They went about things according to their own judgment and their own will. That's why I read that verse at the beginning. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path. See, trusting the Lord, trusting the Lord isn't just something that you do in your mind and in your heart. But when you do it in your mind and your heart, it's something that's lived out by your actions. That's perhaps why we sing, trust and obey, for there's no other way. Trust and obedience go together because if you trust the word of the Lord, then you will obey the word of the Lord. And when we disobey, it is often or maybe always in some sense, when we disobey God's word, it's because we think in some sense we know what is better for us. Or we think we know what is better for us. We think we know what will lead to a more satisfying, fulfilled result. Or we'll, we'll, we think will give us what we really desire. And so we choose our own ways rather than the ways of God. And we live that out in our actions. And that's what they did. That's what they did. They sought their own ways. And interestingly, in this case, it maybe even had an appearance of being a pious way to approach it because they were doing something that on the surface perhaps appeared like they were relying on God because they were seeking to take the ark out into the battlefield. And so they could have perhaps spun this to someone asking them about their intentions and their purpose. They could have perhaps twisted it to appear as if we are relying on the help of the God of Israel. But no, because if they were relying on the help of the God of Israel, they would obey the God of Israel. They would seek guidance from the prophet of the God of Israel. They would seek the guidance of the word, the law that the God of Israel had given them. And they would seek and inquire of him and follow what he told them to do, rather than going and trusting in their own Ways They would, in all their ways, acknowledge him and he would direct their path. So it's a cautionary tale to us and the results are quite tragic and sorrowful. But as sad and tragic as this chapter seems of 1 Samuel chapter 4, there, this is actually uh, not given to us just as a tragic tale, but there are many things in this to encourage us, believe it or not. First of all, in the context, what happens in this chapter is a fulfillment and a confirmation of God's word. 
in fact, this is exactly what God had said was going to take place. God had foretold because of the wickedness and evil of the priests, of Hophni and Phinehas in particular, and the neglect and inability of Eli to uh, rectify the situation, that God was going to pour out his judgment upon the priests and upon his house. He was going to take down the wicked and corrupt leaders of the people, in particular the priests. He was going to take them down and he was going to destroy them. And in doing so, as tragic as it was, it was in fact actually a benefit and a blessing to the people of Israel. Because when unrighteous rulers reign, the people suffer. And the people were suffering. And they were abhorring the sacrifice of God because of what the priests were doing and their wickedness. And so God had told Eli, and then he told Eli again that this was going to take place that his sons were going to be killed, that his house was going to be overthrown, and he was going to be removed from the priesthood, he and his sons, forever. And so this was, in fact, a confirmation of the word of God. And we ought to be encouraged by any evidence we have, the the countless times in the Bible when God fulfills his word that he has spoken. I said he spoke it twice to Eli, and, and when something is spoken twice, In the Bible, God doesn't need to say something twice. We know that. God's word is sure and steadfast and reliable. So when God says it twice, we know that 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 there is an emphasis that is taking place that ought to uh, make us aware of the surety of what he's doing. He sent a man of God to Eli, and he told him this was going to take place. And then later on, He appears to Samuel when Samuel's just a child and he gives Samuel a vision and a revelation of what's going to take place. And then Samuel relays that vision to Eli as further confirmation of Samuel's identity and calling as a prophet of God. And Samuel comes and he tells Eli and Eli is resigned at that point, to what God is going to do. Perhaps he understood because God had spoken this twice that there was no turning from it. Sometimes God warns us, and we still have opportunity to repent. And if if we are warned, then we ought to repent, and we ought to repent swiftly. Eli, his sons, they didn't turn from the course that they were on. They didn't turn from the course like the Ninevites did when Jonah came speaking the word of God to them and saying, in 40 days, this city is going to be overthrown. And they repented in sackcloth and ashes. And they cried out to God for his mercy. And God, because he is an unchanging, merciful, and sovereign God, he is a God that is merciful to those that repent. He is a God that doesn't deal with us as harshly as our sins deserve. He is a God who is merciful to the repentant. God spares them, and he shows mercy to the city of Nineveh, but not here. No mercy here. There was no repentance. There was no turning from what God had said he was going to do, and so this is a confirmation of God's word. It is the judgment of God, and though the judgment of God is a fearsome thing, the judgment of God also ought to give encouragement and courage to the faithful remnant of God's people. 
It is, in fact, a, vi- a vindication of the faithful remnant. Uh, the, the book of Samuel begins, and you can go back sometime uh, next time you read this and, and look at this. The, the book of Samuel begins with these uh, two, two women, uh, and Hannah and Peninnah, and Peninnah has children. She is apparently blessed. She is on the surface. She appears to be fruitful and blessed. And Hannah, on the other hand, is barren and appears to be unfruitful. And yet she is faithful to the Lord. She's trusting in the Lord. She's persecuted by the apparently fruitful Peninnah. But God in that situation shows mercy and grace and and ultimately brings fruitfulness to Hannah, who's representative of the faithful remnant of God's people. But part of God's vindication of his faithful remnant and his people is a judgment of the wicked that must take place. And that is what takes place here. And in doing this, God is preparing the way for to, to raise up righteous rulers among his people. And so it is a good thing for the people of Israel. Lastly, though, as, a, as the upside of what we see in this passage is what is to follow. In this passage, Israel is defeated. The people of God are defeated. They're overthrown. They're overthrown because of their own sin, because of their own wickedness. But as the chapter ends, we, it's not the people of Israel that we see being carried away into captivity, but instead it's the ark of the covenant of the God of Israel. And in this sense, as I said, willingly, by God's own will, God himself goes into exile on their behalf. And I see this as a picture to us, as an illustration to us of the goodness of the gospel. Because when the ark is carried into the land of the Philistines, the Philistines think that they have won a great victory. And they have captured the ark of the God of Israel. And then they think that they can take the God of Israel, the Lord, and they can make him subservient to them and to their gods. And that's exactly what they try to do. But God is not done yet. God is not done with his people. And yes, perhaps if the Old Testament, if the Bible ended with 1 Samuel chapter 4, at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 4, we wouldn't have reason to hope, but the story is going on. The story is going to continue. And so they take the Ark of the Covenant and they, they bring it. Uh, they, they had five cities. The Philistines had five cities that made up their, their kingdom. And it was in the western part along close to the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. And they had encroached into the land that God had given to Israel. And they had in many occasions uh, enslaved the Israelites and oppressed them. And they were had been for many years, and were going to be for years to come. They were going to be the main adversaries of the people of Israel. Well, they take into their main city where the temple of their primary god, Dagon, was, and they take of the Ark of the Covenant, and they place it in the temple of Dagon beside Dagon. And they did this because they were going to basically take the Lord the God of Israel, and make him a servant of their God, Dagon. They were going to put him next to him. Maybe he was going to be his right-hand man in their view. And they thought they could 
leverage the God of Israel to their service. And I won't go into all that follows, but I will summarize it with this. I will say that what would follow would be that God would demonstrate that he was the one that was having the victory over them and over their gods, and he would pour out his judgment upon the Philistines, plague them with a great plague, to the point that in the end, they send back with an offering and with a sacrifice uh, to make atonement and reconciliation to the God of Israel. They send the ark back into the land of Israel, and they want nothing to do with it anymore. The first thing that happened when they placed it into the temple of Dagon is they came back the next day and their God, Dagon, was fallen down on his face before the God of Israel, before the Ark of the Covenant. And they set him back up and they prop him up. They ha- their God, the false gods, have to be propped up. They have to be helped by their people. But the true God is a God that helps his people. They come back the next day, and Dagon's fallen down again, but this time his head is broken off. His hands are broken off. And the hands, they represent power. They represent his ability. And they see that their God is powerless. Their God is headless. Their God is nothing before the God of Israel. And so we see that God going into captivity, he what appeared to be a great defeat was actually going to be the means through which he was going to conquer the gods of the Philistines and bring victory for his people because the God of Israel is a God that helps his people. And we see that he didn't help the wicked Israelites here in 1 Samuel chapter 4, but later on they're going to face another battle with against the Philistines. And this time, things are going to turn around the other way. This battle begins with Israel bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the camp, and they're shouting, and they're fired up. But later on, I think it's in chapter 7, they face the Philistines again. This time, Samuel leads them out into battle, and he leads them out by the guidance of the Lord and by the uh, help of the Lord. And this time, the people of Israel aren't the ones that are described as shouting, but the Lord shouts. The Lord, it says, thunders from heaven, and he gives them the victory. So when God is our help, everything turns around. When we go by our own strength and our own will, we will be crushed no matter how fired up we are. And so we see that that the God of the Philistines could not help them. He had no power. But this is a, this is an illustration to us of the gospel. The God of Israel going into exile for his people. And there's several different shades of this in the life of Jesus, different events that took place that are like this in some sense. Pictures and shadows of, of the same idea. The first is, is the incarnation itself. Jesus would later pray to his father when he was on earth, Father, uh, restore to me the glory that I had with thee before before the foundation of the world. When he came down to earth, he left the glory of heaven to come down into this place, this earth corrupted by sin, this earth filled with 
with wickedness and with corruption and with decay and with death and with sorrow and with suffering and disease and sickness. And he came down to it willingly. No one could make him do that, but he came of his own will, the will of God, and he came to this earth, leaving the glory of heaven to come down here. Well, he was on earth, and he began his ministry. He begins his public ministry with his baptism at the Jordan River. And the Jordan River was on the the, the verge of the, the promised land, and in the Jordan River, he's baptized, and at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes down on him like a dove, and the voice of the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately after that, he goes from that place of, of the waters of the Jordan, and he goes into the wilderness. And he's there in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights, just like the people of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. And he, and, he, and he goes into that place to be tempted and to overcome the temptations of the devil and gain the victory for his people. And then, of course, most importantly, perhaps, in his death itself, when he goes into suffering, death, and the grave, not for himself, not because of his own sin, for, we, for he had none, but on behalf of his people. He allows himself, he willingly submits himself to be apparently defeated and overthrown and to go into the exile of suffering, death, and the grave so that he might obtain the victory. Not because of his sin, but because of our sins, your sin and mine, because of the disobedience of his people. He goes himself into that captivity to gain us the victory, to gain us the victory. And in his death, when he was hanging on that tree, bleeding, suffering, it must have appeared to the world. It must have appeared to anyone who didn't understand that this was the moment of his greatest defeat. That this man, Jesus of Nazareth, this man who had performed many mighty miracles that healed the sick, that made the blind to see, that caused the lame to walk, that healed leper, cleansed lepers, that fed thousands with a few loaves, that turned water into wine. This mighty teacher and great man, this miracle worker, it must have seemed to them that this was at last his greatest defeat that he was there bleeding, dying, with no apparent hope of, of being delivered from it. No angel was, was appearing and coming to pull him off of that cross and rescue him from that death. It must have seemed that he was being defeated. But what, it appeared, what appeared to the world to be his greatest defeat was where he was winning the victory for you and for me. Winning the victory over our sin, winning the victory over death by submitting to it himself on our behalf. And it says of him when he was, when he was there on the cross, in what appeared 
to the eye of the flesh to be a defeat, it says he spoiled principalities and powers. And he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them. Putting away the condemnation of the law and the commandment, the, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, put it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, that in his death, in his apparent defeat, he was winning the victory for his people. And so in that we see that even in this, even as the ark is carried off by the Philistines and they're shouting for joy, thinking that they've won a great defeat, the God of Israel is not defeated. The God of Israel is not overthrown. And Jesus on that cross in the suffering and the death and when he was being wrapped and, and, and carried away into the tomb and placed in a grave in what seemed like to many to be the end of their hope and their expectation in this one that they thought would redeem Israel. Three days and three nights, death itself would not hold him. Death would not keep him, but he rose victorious over the grave for his people, for you and for me.